everyone, and welcome to the Bobble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean. I am your host. I write the blog Unpickled, where I have been writing about my over six years of alcohol-free living. I started it on my very first day of sobriety, and um, I chronicle my story there. And I invite you to share your stories here. And I am thrilled to welcome onto this episode a young woman who is rocking the recovery world these days, a trauma-informed yoga instructor and co-founder of She Recovers, Taryn Strong. Now, I met Taryn on a yoga retreat in Mexico a few years ago, and I was immediately struck with her easy warmth and her open heart which took me back a little because on first impression, she's just this darling, petite, little pixie of a girl. She's beautiful. She's got this waist-long, bright red hair like the Little Mermaid. And I thought she might be intimidating or aloof. But uh, Taryn quickly dispelled all that very quickly with her genuine way of being and her sincere interest in other people, especially other women in recovery. So when she says namaste, the divine in me sees the divine in you, it's clear that she means it because she lives it. So here today to talk about her personal journey, Taryn joins me from Victoria, B.C., up here in Canada. Taryn, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much, Jane, and thank you so much for your kind words. That means so much because, as you know, I have looked up to you since I met you, so it's just really beautiful to hear hear those words. Thank you. I'm really touched. Ah, well, I think the world of you. In some ways, I feel like you're all that you embody all the sort of um, extreme, like energetic, like. Um, risky ways of being that I shy away from, you know, like you're just, you're a vibrant, outgoing person. And I'm, I like, like to blend into the wallpaper. <laughs> so I always well, admire you. you don't. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so uh, this is the, the scary part of the bubble hour where we just ask you to just, you know, open up your whole heart and just share your story with the internet. Um I know yeah. that for you, your story of recovery starts right at birth, um, but that doesn't mean that you had it all figured out right from the beginning. So take us back, Taryn. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My story, it's an interesting one, and it's constantly evolving and changing, right? Um, my story starts, recovery story, we joke and we say that I have been in recovery since I was four years old. And we say that because that's when my parents or my mother and my stepfather, they found recovery. Um, So my earliest and first childhood memories are actually of um, 12-step meetings and campouts. My earliest memories are sitting in rooms, which were very, very smoky back then. This was in the 80s because back then (laughs) you could smoke in the church basements or wherever you were. So my earliest memories are these smoky, smoky rooms and being surrounded by people who I knew were like, I just thought they were super cool, you know, tattooed, bikers, beautiful women. And I just remember people saying, for example, my mom, hi, my name is Dawn and I am a addict in her case. Um, So those are my earliest memories. And then for me, um, you know, when I was younger, I was, I was a dancer. So when I look back, I, at a very, very young age, started being really hard on myself and started struggling and dealing with perfectionism, always thinking, because I was a competitive dancer, so always 
kind of worried about my weight and the things that I was eating and not thinking that I was good enough and always comparing myself to other people. And then I actually, the first time that I ever got drunk, I was 12 years old. And I wasn't very good at it, of course. I mean, who is? But I remember just drinking this two liter of of a cider and getting very, very intoxicated. And that was my first time. And I also remember the first time when I drank, you know, not being good at it and being completely out of control, but it also provided this sense of calm that, and confidence as well, that um, I kind of looked for with my dancing. Like when I was competing, before I would be competing or while I was dancing or performing, I would always have this kind of fake it till you make it and pretend to be relaxed and pretend to be confident. And then when I remember when I drank for the first time, it gave me those qualities. And I was very, very intrigued by that. So mm-hmm. for the next few years of my life, I was experimenting with, with drinking um, and also started trying to be cool and smoking cigarettes and also um, experimenting with, with pot. I'm sure I got caught a few times within those few years. Um, I can remember one time in particular, but I was a very, very good liar and really, really good at hiding it by ensuring that those nights where I was going to be drinking with my friends, I would sleep somewhere else. I wouldn't be going home because having parents in recovery was really, really inconvenient when you're a child who would be needing to steal liquor from their parents to drink. <laughs> I didn't have that luxury, right? So, and also my parents, they were, they were sober, they were clean. So they were very, very present and very aware. So I knew if I came home smelling a little bit like alcohol or being even a tiny bit tipsy, they would know right away. So I, I hid it by ensuring that I wasn't going to be home on those nights. Um, when I was 15, I started self-harm, doing some self-mutilation. That provided another escape for me that I, I, I really enjoyed. But then when I was 16 is when I really started getting more into the heavier drugs. The reason for that was I wasn't good at drinking because I'm that person who I can't just have a few drinks. So even as a preteen, I would just get so drunk like that I would be puking. So that wasn't fun to me. I wasn't having a good time like my friends were. Smoking pot, it made me really introverted and quiet. So I didn't like that either because I wanted to be the fun party girl. I didn't want to be the girl sitting at the party paranoid, not wanting anybody to look at me. So I remember (laughs) my parents, they were um, one of the things that they recover from, recovery, are in recovery from is cocaine. So I was always very curious about this taboo drug. The, they all were taboo, but cocaine, I was always very, very interested in how this particular substance, it, how it ran my parents' life for so long and why they couldn't stop. So I remember being 16, my friends and I had just started to get our driver's license Nobody that I knew, I'm from a very small town in Alberta, no one in our circle of friends were doing hard drugs, but me and a few of my girlfriends, we liked to be different and we liked that attention that being different brought on. And we decided that we were going to be the first ones to to try cocaine. Um, You know, for me, because the booze and the pot wasn't working and I wanted to have that confident party girl personality. 
So we somehow were able to find a dealer from a, the city of Edmonton. We were in Beaumont, and um, the first time I did it, I remember calling up my best friend right afterward who has never touched cocaine in her life and telling her, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. Um, and then from then on, I was the pers- a girl, a 16-year-old girl who was doing cocaine all day, every day. I stopped showing up for the job that I had. I worked at a clothing store in Edmonton, and I just stopped showing up. I would I would go to school in the morning just so that I could, you know, get together with my girlfriends that I was doing with. We would we would go to school. We'd hop in one of our cars and go to Edmonton to get drugs, and then we would just get high all day, every day, and all night. Um, but when you're a 16 year old without a job now, cocaine, of course, is quite expensive. So I needed to get creative in how I could help support the habit that I was developing. So at 16, I decided that the boyfriend that I needed to have was actually dealing, um, crap at the time. He was from our small town, Beaumont, but he had just relocated to the big city and I was able to, you know, kind of almost manipulate him into being my boyfriend so that I could use him really for his drugs. But it was a very, very dangerous time. I was definitely put in a lot, put myself in a lot of dangerous, dangerous situations. And, you know, he, if we're going to fast forward to today, just got out of jail for being caught with a lot of drugs and weapons and, as a 16-year-old girl, that, that was just my life, and I thought I was so cool, and I loved that when I was doing cocaine, I could still drive. So, again, my parents wouldn't know, um, and I was, as a dancer, still competitively dancing, and not for much longer, but I, w- I could go to dance, and I could just dance and dance and dance and dance with all of this energy that I had, but, of course, that very, 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 very quickly, everything declined. I, I stopped dancing I just stopped going again and because I'm in a small town my parents actually found out um, in the grocery store a local grocery store I believe if I'm remembering the story correctly one of the cashiers said do you know that your daughter is dating a crack dealer and that she's addicted to cocaine so of course my mom thought that person was crazy approached me about it I told my mom that she that that person was crazy and what a ridiculous rumor and we moved on. I, I had convinced her that they, they were the crazy ones. And then recently after that, the school counselor had called me into the office. You know, if this was true, if me and my friends were doing the drugs that they were hearing we were doing. And once again, I was somehow able to manipulate him that it wasn't me. It was everyone else. And yes, I was their friend, but I wasn't doing them. And the counselor called my mom into the office and had said that I had given an Oscar-worthy performance because um, <laughs> I actually had convinced him that I, that I, it wasn't me. It was everyone but me. And he actually believed me. So, you know, when we're addicts, the lies we can tell ourselves and others were so convincing. Um, but, again, it quickly, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't going very well. And finally, I, I, I was just, I was very, very sick. And I was tired. And like, you know, Ozzy Osbourne says, I was sick of being sick and tired. I was scared. Just a 16-year-old girl, so scared. Um, we got to a point where we couldn't do cocaine anymore because we couldn't afford to do it anymore. We needed to be selling these drugs. We couldn't be doing all of them. So we actually had switched our drug of choice to meth. So now I was doing um, smoking and snorting meth 
on a daily basis and running away from home and not going to school so I could live with this boyfriend. And I just got to a point where I was scared. I I wasn't eating. I weighed, I don't know, maybe 90 pounds. Um, And it was just, I was just frightened. So I finally reached out to my mom and we started that recovery journey. Um, When I was 16 and I had reached out, we, my mom, because she was in recovery, she decided that she was going to do everything that her parents didn't do. And what her parents did was just kind of thought, well, kids will be kids and didn't really do anything. So my mom decided that she was going to do whatever it took to get me back on the right path. I had two therapists at this time in my life. Um, I had a, a a therapist to talk about life. And then I also had a drug therapist. So I would see the drug therapist and do the P test. Um, to make sure that I was doing what I was saying I was doing, and then I had the therapist as well. So that was interesting for me, but I, I did it. I was wanting to do what it took to, to get away from that scary life, but I was in love now, in love in quotations, with my drug dealer boyfriend. So we had a deal, I had to deal with my parents, but I wasn't allowed to see him anymore, and I had to go to therapy, and I had to be doing these drug tests, and they didn't know that I was seeing him behind their back. Usually over lunch hours, he would come and we would hang out. I honestly can't remember if I used those times that I was sneaking away to see him. I, I, it's such a blur. I, I don't know. I, would, I don't think so because of the drug test, but I'm not 100% sure. But I did get caught doing that. So the consequence for that was I, got, I had to go live with my dad in Red Deer, Alberta, which is about an hour and a half away. And that was traumatizing for me because I, 16-year-old girl, I had to move away from my friends and everyone I knew. And I love my dad, but I didn't want to live with my dad and my new stepmom. That was worst case scenario. So the deal was I, um, I had to finish, if I could, finish grade 11 through correspondence. And if I was able to stay away from drug dealer boyfriends and stay off of drugs, I, the deal was I could move back to Beaumont for grade 12 and graduate with my friends. And I took that very seriously. And I actually finished grade 11 through correspondence, and I did very well because I had nothing else to do but focus on school. <laughs> and then I, I went back, and I got to graduate with my friends. And in grade 12... I tried drinking again a few times, but again, realized, no, this isn't my thing. And if I ever get caught doing any other drug, I don't want to deal with that right now. So I actually, um, I was abstinent for, for a few years. Like at my grad, I remember everyone was drinking and I, I was the only, so no, maybe not the only sober one, but it felt like it. it felt like I was one of the only sober people at that after grad party. Um, and, and that was great. I had a, a healthy relationship as hell, you know, I was in high school, but I was dating a really nice guy who I loved and he wasn't cool with drugs. So that helped me stay away from them. Um, so I was asking it for a few years. And then when I was 20, my mom got diagnosed with cancer and we, I mean, I, you know, we, 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 we go, we go there. So I was sure she was going to die um, and wasn't coping with it very well for lots of reasons. And one of the reasons was she had just moved to Victoria and my sister and I were, were still in Edmonton. So it was really hard her going through her treatments and my sister and I being 
not not with her. So I actually started, um, you know, self-medicating and coping by by drinking again. And my cousin, who was going through quite a traumatic experience in her life at the time, my sister and I, we were roommates. So we we enabled each other, really. And at the time, we just thought, I mean, my sister was 24, I was 20, my cousin was 19. We, at the time, just thought we were just young girls doing what young girls do. But we were binge partying a lot, probably more than the average girls in their 20-somethings. Um, and then my sister and I actually, we did move out to Victoria to be closer to mom. And when we moved here, we were still kind of coping with, with how much it rattled us that mom had cancer and we thought we were going to lose her. And Ashley and I, my sister and I, we did smoke a lot of pot, which I never liked. Um, and, and we drank a lot during the week. We would smoke pot weekends. We would, we would binge drink. Um, and I was getting really sick and tired of that as well. Cause at this point I was also doing my teacher training and I had so much shame and so much guilt because I would show up to my yoga teacher training on the weekends and be hungover, or maybe still a little bit drunk from the night before. Um, so fast forward a few years after that. And I, my sister and I, we stopped living together, and that was really, really good for us. Um, she soon met her now husband and, you know, found love and was doing that whole thing. And I, I was living in my mom's basement, which was great because although I was still partying sometimes, it, it wasn't as – it had definitely – it was kind of a bit of a harm reduction stage, it felt like. Again, though, even though I wasn't living with my parents, I would – just not come home on those nights when I was partying really hard because I just felt too guilty to even be near them or know that they were upstairs if I was extremely hungover or whatnot. Um, my mid-20s, I fell in love really quickly and married a man, a boy. We were both very young. And this was a period in my life when, again, I wasn't, I, st- I stopped partying. It didn't interest me. I was in love and I was focused on my career and I just couldn't be bothered to, to go out and drink. I just wanted to, I was finally focused on my yoga and that's, that's all that mattered. We got married just a few months after knowing each other and we, the marriage ended about a year and a bit after being married. Um, shouldn't have done it. We, you know, fell in love quickly and then you actually, you know, you know, you get to learn who the person really is. And, and it just wasn't a fit. But when my marriage ended in um, 2014, I guess it was, end of 2013, that's when a huge decline happened in my life again. I think when my marriage ended, I had a lot of guilt and shame around that because I felt like I had let my family down. I let his family down. You know, why wasn't I doing what you were supposed to do? You're supposed to have a career. You're supposed to get married, get a house, do the baby thing. And I had failed at that. And I think, you know, it really affected me. So after the marriage ended, I I was living alone and then started engaging in really risky behaviors and started drinking again and started using cocaine again and started using men and sex to self-medicate and because I was living alone, I, I could do all of these things and nobody, nobody knew. It was kind of my own, my, my dirty little secret that I had. Um, 
And I thought, though, I'm like, okay, I'm just doing this on the weekends. It's okay because Monday to Friday I'm still going to work, and in the evenings I'm still teaching yoga, and this is just what people do. On the weekends we, we party our face off, and then Monday we go back to work and all is well. Um, but then I those binges started lasting longer than the weekend and started happening during the week. And I was just riddled with, and I know I've said this a few times already, but it was the shame and it was the guilt that was eating away at me because now I was a part of She Recovers. I joined mom with She Recovers. She started the Facebook group and then we started doing the retreats in 2012. So I'm the Yoga for Recovery teacher. Uh, My business and my passion project is She Recovers and I'm partying on the weekends and then sometimes during the week. But I genuinely believed I was a normie. And I would, you know, look up literature and I'd kind of ask around. And Jean, you're the one who said this to me at a retreat. Because I would ask my friends and some family members and say, do you think this is okay that I do this, even though I teach yoga for recovery or even though there's a she recovers thing going on? And they would say, oh, yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, you guys have your, we're all recovering from something philosophy. So you're not recovering from drug and alcohol addiction. So you're fine. And that's, that's, that's the story that I had. And that's what I went with. So at retreats and in classes, because this is what I genuinely, genuinely, I mean, denial, what a, what a great thing it is at the time. Hey, I genuinely just thought I was a normie and that it was okay. So at retreats and classes, I would tell people I'm in recovery from codependency, self-harm, disordered eating, but, um, but I'm a normie. I have a healthy relationship with, with alcohol. Never told people that I was doing all the other drugs also. Um, in 20, yeah, in 2014, I was in, started a relationship with, with somebody else and it was, it was an unhealthy relationship. We, we, we enabled each other. We, he, you know, I was now dating another, another drug dealer, which that's a pattern that, I mean, my dad was a drug dealer and then I had my 16 year old drug dealer and now I'm however old this is just a few years ago I'm 28 29 with a drug dealer boyfriend again and partying all the time and I had left my day job to focus on she recovers full-time so now I had a little bit more availability in my schedule to to have these these binges but still convincing myself that I'm a normie and then one day my boyfriend at the time was really like I could hear the concern in his voice which was rattling because keep in mind, he was dealing the drugs to our friends and whatnot. And he said, I really think you're an addict and this is a really big problem and you need to talk to your mom. She needs to know. But of course there was no way in hell I was going to do that. So instead I was like, okay, well let me go to a meeting. I'll check it out. I'll see how it feels. So this was August, 2015. And I went to a meeting and I have nothing but respect for, for, for 12 step fellowships that my parents are part of them. And they're just, they're just wonderful. They don't work for me though. Um, in, in, in my case at this time in my life, I went to this meeting and I listened to people talk about their bottoms. And so I was thinking about it and I wasn't as bad as 16 year old Taryn. I, I wasn't, I wasn't using every day all day. I was still going to yoga. I was still teaching yoga. I would not party leading up to retreat so that I would have, I'd be clear for a few weeks before these retreats. Um, I was still doing what I was supposed to be doing. I hadn't, I hadn't hit a bottom. I hadn't lost anything. I was still functioning. And I was listening to these stories and thinking, yeah, I'm not anywhere close to these people. I must be fine. So I left that meeting thinking, no, I, I'm good. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. 
And then, um, but it just didn't feel right still. Like the shame and the guilt, I would just get these emotional hangovers that lasted longer than the real hangovers. And I just hated myself. So when I was going to lead a retreat in November of 2015, I said, okay, I got to start figuring some shit out. Like I need to start talking. My, my close friends, my party friends knew what was going on with me, but nobody else. So I went to this retreat and I was, they gear my shit out at this retreat and we have sharing circles. And the first evening of the sharing circle, somebody shared exactly what I needed to hear. And she said, I haven't drank for five years, but my drinking problem, I didn't drink every day, but I would have the emotional hangover that would last a week. And I realized, okay, I need to stop. That's what I have is, okay, maybe I'm not using every day, but it's going to get there. It's things are getting there and declining really quickly. And it's the emotional hangovers that, that I need, that I need to stop. So um, I decided, or I realized that, okay, I am, I do have a problem. I guess I am an addict. I'm not a normie, I guess is what I decided. So that was the first time, and this was, yeah, in 2015, November 2015, I was like, okay, I need to stop. I need to make some lifestyle changes. And I was going to Bali right after. So my trip to Bali in December and January was my first time not, like, deciding to be abstinent from drugs and alcohol again. And I did. I went to Bali, and my boyfriend at the time, that same guy, came with me. And he would have maybe a beer here and there, but we had decided that together we were going to be the recovery couple. We were going to go from being this rock and roll power couple to the recovery couple. It was this beautiful daydream that we had created, that we had. Um, so I went to Bali, and I felt amazing. I, it was so great. And there, there are some parts of Bali that are party city, so it, there were some temptations, but stayed strong and felt like a superhero and I came home and boyfriend and I decided we, well, we actually split up. That was, you know, wasn't going to happen after all. We weren't going to be the power recovery couple after all, but I came home and kept traveling. And I, back in my environment, started partying again, started getting loaded. And I realized, you know, I ran, I didn't run away, but I went to Bali. I was away from my day-to-day life. So it was easy to not use. But when I got home, dealing with the breakup and whatever I was trying to process. I, I did, I got loaded a few times in the beginning of 2016, which really shook me up because I realized when I tried to stop that I actually couldn't stop. So then again, I realized, Oh my God, I'm not a normie. Like I thought I was. So luckily whenever we have these, she recovers retreats, you know, the history of my retreats has been, I have a lot of shit to deal with at these retreats also. So May of 2016, I decided that I needed to I needed to get open and honest and stop pretending that I was a normie and I needed to talk about it because at this point I was keeping my story to myself. My mom didn't know, nobody knew, and I realized that that was giving. I, with that, I was giving myself permission to keep using because nobody knew anyway. So at the retreat in May of 2016, I decided that I was going to, you know, kind of come out of the closet um, and that I was going to share that what was happening because I realized that I was just staying sick, sick with my secrets and the shame that I was carrying. So in May of 2016 at the retreat, I came out and said, 
you know, shocked the hell out of my mom and our retreat partner <laughs> when I just started actually being honest and not and realizing, okay, I can't, I can't hide behind my mom's story anymore. Cause that's what I did. We would say, Oh, my mom's in recovery. I'm a recovering codependent. So I finally came out and said, you know what guys, hi, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm a recovering drug addict and I'm recovering from alcohol abuse and self-harm and disordered eating and trauma and, all those other things as well. So that was, it was huge. And it's been a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful journey since then. That's, that's a long story, but that's, that's the story. <laughs> I, I didn't know all those details for as many times as you and I have talked about this. Um, yeah. I, I, I've never of, heard. You know, I've been piecing it together since May. I've had a lot of time to figure out what the, what the heck just happened. Because I, I was still in it, kind of. Um, the times I've seen you, I've still been in that fog and that, did that really just happen? Was I really just doing that? So as as I evolve in my recovery, I'm able to see things clearly and I'm able to cut through my own crap. And I'm in a place where I I can be honest because I don't have that guilt and that shame anymore that I was carrying. So, and Isn't that like the it. greatest part of recovery is that? Yeah, it's it's true freedom from from all the all the you know we hear it all the time. It's it, we in recovery we find what we were really seeking in using. Yeah, the, the yeah. freedom that we were looking for is there. It just we can't exactly. find it. Now I have to tell you, I was there in May when you um, when you yes announced your recovery and. Um, I didn't dig very deep at the time. I sort of listened to you, you shared and you, you, I knew it was a big deal for you because part of leading a group is sometimes keeping your separation. And, you you know, I think sometimes Mm -hmm. when we're leading other people, we think like I'm holding space for them, you know, I'm not going to make this about me, about them. And so how do you, how do you, um, and yet, you know, you want to be genuine. And so I remember very well the day that you did that because, um, I knew it was hard for you because it was a shift in how you'd held space for other people to take some of that space for yourself. But I thought it was really great at the time. And then I happen to have been lucky enough to not only go to a May retreat, but then to come back later in the year in November. On That's a right. And I saw such a difference in you, in, in your ability to talk about it and ask questions and claim your space in the conversation in those few months that, that you um, clearly were just getting, feeling more safe in that identity. And, and, um, exactly. and I, it, it's yeah, a beautiful it thing huge. to see. Yeah. It was so scary because you're right. Up until that retreat in May of 2016, I had said, and I, you know, I would talk about with mom because mom would tell me, Karen, you need to be a little more op- open and vulnerable in your, in the sharing circles, like tell people what's going on. I'd be like, nope, I am here to hold space for them. It's not about me. It's about them. So I'd be going through divorces and I would be going through, am I an addict or not? Like I'd be going through big things, but just internalizing it, not talking about it because I needed to pretend that I had my shit together because I felt like a fraud. Imposter syndrome. syndrome. I thought if these women don't realize I do not, not even close to getting my shit together, they're why are they here what am I doing here who do I think I am so in that retreat to be able to 
to have that shift and be like, you know what, it's actually my privilege and my responsibility to be real and to be raw and to be vulnerable and to be human because that's what they're doing for me. And I need to do that as well because that is how we heal is by sharing and being real with one another. And when I got to really feel that myself in that May retreat, it was just, oh, it was so powerful for me. So Mm. powerful. It gave you a glimpse of what it is that you're giving to others in a way you maybe couldn't have experienced before. Yeah. Yeah, true. Absolutely. Well, I have some questions for you. And, you know, just as you were telling your story, it strikes me as like, ironic, I guess, is the best word that a kid who was raised in a sober home and um, surrounded by all this knowledge of sobriety, you know, still went through what you went through. And, it strikes me as as a common feature of so many stories. Like we always hear about the pastor's kid who's like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the worst kid in town. Or um, I know people who are in the um, psychology profession who feel like their kids shouldn't have problems because they're supposed to be some kind of an expert or, you know, the teacher whose yeah. kid is failing math. Like um, it, it really, I think in a way, like we expect – as a parent, we, we never want our kids to be hurt. And we feel like if we can get our life safe, we can create a safe space for them. But you had to go through what you had to go through. So I guess my question is, do you think that all the exposure you had to recovery made it harder to see yourself as an addict? Or do you think when it just you needed to get to a point, it made it easier when you finally got there? But was it a help or a hindrance? You know what, I think that, I think because the recovery that I grew up with was 12 step, I kind of talked about this before, I think that that's why I, I mean, I know I had, I see now that I went through it because of where I am today, and because it is my purpose to, to help other women in recovery. So I understand now, and I'm I'm grateful for that now. Um, But I think I mean, my parents, they're, they're so amazing and they've always been so supportive and I'm so, so lucky. And I just think that having been, being in a 12 step home, um, there was that it's, you know, abstinence and it's just, it's, and it's, you can't do anything and it's all really, really bad. And so that of course piqued my curiosity, probably, like I had said, I was so curious about cocaine because I was like, what the hell's the big deal? Why did this derail your guys' lives? Like I've got to check this out for myself and figure it out for myself. <laughs> um, so I think there was a little bit of that. And also because I was that kid who I wanted to, to be different. I, I mean, look at the color, color of my hair. I kind of, <laughs> I guess I like standing out. I, I like be, being a dancer too. Like I am, um, it was also that I, nobody was doing it. People, kids were drinking and smoking pot. So I was going to do the hard drugs that my parents did. And I, I, you know, being in those 12 step meetings, I really, as a kid, I remember also just thinking how badass I thought these people were. I thought they were rebels. I thought they were rock and roll. And that's what I loved is I wanted to be this badass rebel rock and roll chick. I had a bit of an obsession also with the sixties and, and groupies of the sixties. So that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. But um, also because of the 12 step background in my family, I think that was a bit of a, hind- that's just conditionally, I might get a lot of um, flack for this. I think it was a hindrance because 
I kept comparing myself to those bottoms and thinking that I needed to hit this absolute bottom and be completely powerless and not have a house or a job or a car and then I would need help. Um, So I think that I was able to keep doing what I was doing because I thought that based on the 12-step program that my family was a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I should mention as well, my sister, she genuinely is a normie. So her and I, you know, she, we are both, we are sisters and she is just, oh, I just love her. We are, we are night and day in every single way possible. And she, you know, she, she, she drank, we drank together and we smoked pot, but she, she would, she would, she would drink. She would get drunk. She would go home at 12 and go to bed, eat a pizza and go to bed. I was the girl that would keep going. I couldn't stop. I'd be looking for the after party or looking for a dude, right? Um, my sister would, she would get drunk, be a sloppy drunk, go to bed, um, smoked pot. And she stopped though. Like she decided that she wants to have a husband and a kid and she, she stopped no problem. So she, she, my sister was able to have now a healthy relationship with drugs. I wouldn't call her an addict or an alcoholic at all, but me, um, just the way I also think that I remember my first drug counselor telling me the way that my, I'm genetically wired. My sister and I do have different dads. Um, I think there was that component for me as well. I just have that addict brain. I th- I think that's common, and um, I was mm-hmm. I was raised in a sober household as well. Um, oh, my, I know that. Yeah, my but my my father had gotten sober as a very young man in his early twenties before he was married. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I just it was just normal in our house that there was no alcohol. And um, yeah. and I knew we always he told us from a young age, oh, I don't drink because uh, I'm an alcoholic. And when you're an alcoholic and you get sober, you can never drink again. But he didn't go to meetings and he didn't talk recovery, but he was always very honest mm-hmm. about, you know, having had to quit drinking as a young man. And um, and so I, it, it's interesting to me that I like I was also raised in a sober household and I feel like it made it harder for me to identify in some ways, because I just define myself in opposition. And also, also as a perfectionist myself, I was always trying to do things to the top degree. And I had the same condition you described, where I would sort of bento box parts of my life. So like, as long as you didn't know about it, it wasn't happening. So exactly. If people didn't see me drink alone in my kitchen, like, I just think I valued myself so little that I didn't care what I knew was true. I only care what other people saw was true. I mean, that's raging codependence, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, Recovery is getting back to where you're like, oh, no, it matters if I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. And um, so I, I wonder sometimes if, if that does make it harder for us or if it's just like, oh, well, that's their thing. I want my thing. Um, mm-hmm. And even in terms of using, when you talk about being a perfectionist and going to extremes and like, yeah, that played out in, in your drug use as well and your drinking as well, that, you know, you wanted to be the worst or the best or whatever at it. And um, yeah, oh, absolutely. So multilayered. Yeah, I, um, yeah, definitely. 
So I, I yoga also, a- I think I kind of glamorized. I, as a young girl, my parents, they were really open about their, 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 their using their life. Um, you know, my, like I had mentioned, they were, they were drug dealers and we had this fancy house here in the West coast. I, and um, it, it sounded, you know, fancy cars. And although they weren't telling the stories in a glamorous way, they would tell me the stories to try to scare me away from using drugs and alcohol. But in my mind, I glamorized it. Like I just had these visions of my beautiful young parents and these fancy cars and these fancy houses. And I guess I just thought, well, it didn't work for them, but I can try to make it work for me. They just, they did it wrong. They did all the drugs. They shouldn't have done that. I just won't do all the drugs. I'll just do 90% of the drugs. And and yeah, so I, I also think when growing up in the recovery household, the stories they told, I changed in my mind to make it sound glamorous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You edited it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I edited it. Something else I jotted down as you were talking that um, really struck me is that I feel like we're always looking for these perfect solutions. And um, a lot of people describe that experience when they try alcohol or when they get involved with drugs is like, oh, this is it. Uh, this works perfectly. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, it, it's not sustainable. It never is. So it might work perfectly for a while, and that keeps us hooked in. And then yeah. it all, like, you can guarantee that it's, it can't stay that way. And, um, and something's going to fall apart. And, um, and that's really, I could see how that would be impossible to believe as a 16-year-old girl. Like, no, 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 I've got this. I've got this. <laughs> I can mm-hmm. totally manage my life at this level. Um, Whereas when we're a little bit older, we can maybe identify quicker that like, okay, I'm losing the equilibrium. This isn't, this isn't working. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just never permanent. But I want to talk, I want to talk a little bit more about your recovery and uh, you introduced me to yoga. I mean, I just went to the yoga retreat (laughs) for two purposes, to be left alone on a beach and to meet some other women in recovery because I got sober by myself and I needed some friends. And so the yoga yeah. was just sort of uh, like it, it was there, so I did it. And um, yeah. you had done some Pilates, I remember, but you were new just, to yoga. Well, yeah, because I like I I recorded it off TV because I knew I was going to a yoga retreat, and I didn't want to <laughs> be a total <laughs> noob. So I thought there. I was doing yoga. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there you so, go. <laughs> um, but what I I didn't understand that it was. Um, such an inside and outside combination that really connected the, the, the body to the mind and the spirit. And just mm-hmm. that, to be unified in that way was a really new experience for me. And it became an important part of my recovery. And um, so I'm just, I just want you to talk a little bit about yoga and um, mm-hmm. how you became introduced to it as a, as a yoga, as a recovery tool and um, explain mm-hmm. to us why does it help? Like what what's going on that yeah. lends itself to recovery? Absolutely. So my um, when I was living in Alberta still, when Mom had just moved to Victoria, and we and got she decided to get cancer like a few days before she came to Victoria, the jerk. Um, <laughs> that year is when I started doing yoga but when I started doing yoga like you doing it online it wasn't a thing online yet I was doing DVDs my sister bought me these Rodney Yee yoga DVDs from Costco 
and I was doing them in my living room and I still, I was also, um, I started dancing again. Luckily I, I stopped dancing for a little while there while I was addicted to Coke and meth, but I got back to it when I was, um, back on track. So I was 20, 19 and 20 and I was dancing and I was doing yoga at home and I had the dancer mentality. So I know I was just, when I was doing yoga at home, I was pushing myself way too far and not actually breathing or doing any of the mindfulness. But even though I was doing all of that, I was still seeing the benefits, seeing it as a dancer. And also I was noticing that after my 45 minutes on my carpet in my living room of pushing and not breathing and not then meditating, whatever I was doing was still working. And I felt amazing. When we moved to Victoria, uh, my sister and I moved out here together, of course, to be with mom. And I had begged my sister to go to a yoga class with me. Edmonton didn't have really a yoga scene that I was aware of, but of course, Victoria did, which I was really excited about. So I was excited to take my first actual class. Um, my sister came with me, and like I've mentioned, we're day and night. That was her first yoga class she ever took and the last yoga class she ever took. She's never <laughs> been back. Not her thing, but we still love her. Um, and that first yoga class, though, it obviously, it changed my life. Um, the teacher was talking about gratitude. And I, and f- at the minute she said gratitude, in the back of my mind, I thought, I mean, gratitude, it's a buzzword right now. Everybody's grateful. Everybody's full of gratitude. You hear about gratitude all over social media. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But when, I, when she said gratitude, it wasn't a buzzword yet because social media wasn't really a thing yet. And I realized, oh, the only other time I've, ta- I've heard somebody talk about gratitude was in 12-step meetings. So I just thought that was interesting. And then we did yoga, and I left that first class. And we'd been living in Victoria for a few weeks, probably. But we walked out of the studio, and I'm not even kidding. I, for the first time, could smell the ocean air. And the sky was bluer. And the grass was greener. And I was, I literally was filled with gratitude, which I was like, whoa, what is this? Because this was a time in my life when I didn't feel like I had anything to be grateful about. I was so stressed, so worried about mom. I was in a brand new town where we didn't know anybody I didn't have a job so to have that moment of gratitude and peace and happiness um what was like what was that so I you know went back to yoga every day since then I joined the they had a karma program at that yoga studio so I was able to work at the front desk signing people in and out of class in exchange for free yoga classes And I just was noticing every class I was going to, the teacher would be talking about letting go or surrendering. And I was realizing they were talking the same language that the 12-step people were talking about, like the same things, but in different ways. But it felt very familiar because I had heard this stuff in 12-step meetings. So I realized um, at about a year after that that I wanted to become a yoga teacher and I wanted to focus my studies on yoga for recovery helping addicts in recovery because I thought surely I'm not the first person I'm not even a 12 and I'm, I'm not even in a 12-step program at this and I'm not now but especially not then um, I wasn't even in recovery but I thought surely I'm not the only person who sees the similarities between yoga philosophy and the 12-step stuff I was so intrigued so I took my teacher training and then my first 
teacher, uh, my first teaching job, and it wasn't a job gig, I volunteered at the detox facility here in town, Monday nights for 45 minutes. And it was a detox and nobody would want to come to the class. So when I first started offering it, I would actually have to go out to the smoke pit and into the TV room and like, hey guys, come try it out. Just try a pose. If you don't like it, you can leave and basically beg them to come to class. (laughs) And they would. They were, I think they felt sorry for me. So they would come and they stayed, they would stay. And then I would see them the next week. And of course I would, I would see them, they would be in detox in this silly, um, there was an impatient for four weeks. So I would see them for four weeks and then some of them would keep coming back because we opened it up so that they can keep coming when they were in their outpatient treatments. So that, I mean, and I was scared. I was 21 now and um, scared I was going to break people because I was new to teaching yoga and it was like just little old me and these people in recovery and I just didn't know who I thought I was but uh, they it was great and I got to see how powerful it was even if somebody just had one breath where they were relaxed or mindful or connected what a benefit they would have so I took, again, um, took trainings to focus on that. And it was really hard to find any type of literature. There weren't any yoga for recovery books at the time. And mom, of course, is, you know, she's a researcher. So she was on it. I was like, mom, I need some books on yoga and the 12 steps. I need some books on yoga and recovery. I need to take some trainings because I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Like I, I, I could tell that I would want to have some, more than just my basic teacher training to be teaching to people in this, in this vulnerable state. Like I could see, I, people were cracking wide open on the mat and I needed to, I wanted the tools and the skills to be able to, to hold space for them safely and help them and guide them through that. So it took years until finally trainings and books came out. And as the books came out, I would buy them and I took the trainings that I could take. I'm on a bit of a ramble now. So That is what brought me to yoga for recovery. Um, When I first started teaching, it was just like yoga for people with alcohol or drug addiction. And then I would have people who would be like, well, I'm not, I'm not like a substance addict, but I'm recovering from grief or trauma. Can I come? So I realized that, and we realized as she recovers that we needed to really open it up, that we're all recovering from something. So my class really has changed and shifted and evolved in that way. Um, And one of the most important training pieces that I have is my trauma-informed yoga teacher training because that really helped me to have the confidence if somebody disassociates or if somebody is triggered on the mat, how I can help guide them through Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. That was really important. Um, The benefits of yoga. Why yoga for recovery? Um, I think that in the West, with my experiences in my recovery and when I was, you know, I was in therapy and it was really helping with my mind and the mental stuff. And then there's the 12 steps, which is great for our minds and and spirits. But in the West, we were really neglecting healing and recovering the body. And we need to recover the body because of lots of reasons. I mean, for me in active addiction, the harm that I did to my body from the drugs that I was using in the amount and the disordered eating and just the unhealthy lifestyle in my case, needing to find like repair that yoga can help because it helps bring balance back to our home hormones and our nervous system, et cetera. But also addressing the fact that our biology becomes our biography. Peter Levine said that. And 
Nikki Myers, she's one of my faves, she says that um, the issues are in our tissues. So anything that happens to us in our life, the good or the bad, we, we store in our bodies. We store in our connective tissue. So, you know, traumatic experiences, for example, from childhood or whatnot, we're storing in the body. And that's not going anywhere unless we're doing something to release it. So that's why yoga is amazing. That's why massage and acupuncture and all those other wonderful self-care things that we do help us to literally release the energy and the charge that is stored from those experiences. Um, That's also why sometimes on a yoga mat, you might get really emotional. And if you don't know where it came from, who cares what memory or what it is, but a lot of people will be really thrown off if they got angry on the mat and they don't know why, or they got really emotional and were crying and they don't know why, or if they had a really weird memory, that's what that is. That's the power of yoga. We're releasing it from the body. So it's to have that holistic approach to recovery. Yoga, we can't just do yoga. We also, of course, I love therapy. I love EFT. I love my essential oils, love massage, blah, blah, blah. We need to be doing all of those things with yoga, not just yoga, but we need to be addressing the body as well. And also I find that yoga, it's, I think, I mean, for a lot of people with our addictions, we are seeking connection. And with yoga, the word yoga, if we translate it from Sanskrit, it means to yoke. So it's actually we're reconnecting body, mind, and spirit. We're reconnecting with ourselves and with our hearts. We're reconnecting with our breath and the power and the transformation that comes from that, from us constantly seeking from the external, but having these tools to actually have it internally is it's so beautiful, so profound. You know what really has made a difference for me with yoga is that – I also was a dancer when I was younger um, and I, I really liked dance. Like I really, I enjoyed like moving my body and the, but I, I, w- I hated the comparison because I was always big, mm-hmm. you know, I was taller and I wasn't as graceful and right. I just wasn't a, a great dancer. And when I went into a yoga class, like when, now when I go to yoga, I love that I get to, I love someone telling me what to do for an hour, like just yes. like even like breathe in and do this, breathe out and do that. So you get to, you get right in the moment, but I love that it's not about being judged or being perfect. The instructor is always saying, honor your body, do this to where your body, listen to what your body is telling you. Don't go farther than your body wants to go. It's all about you. So mm-hmm. the only right way to do it is the way you're doing it. And yeah, I love that. And that instead of um, compared to dance classes, you know, if someone was like clumsy or awkward or not the perfect dancer figure, um, they were tolerated to some extent, but they really didn't fit the mold. Whereas everyone is celebrated in a yoga class. You know, when I look over and I see someone who's older or someone who's maybe new to fitness, who's, you know, hasn't, doesn't have a lot of um, flexibility. Like I celebrate that they're there. I'm so Mm -hmm. happy and I'm not comparing who's doing what better than who I'm just, I just see everyone just celebrating where they're at. And um, that was mind blowing to me, that idea of, Oh yeah, me too. And it was a really big shift for me because when I first started taking these yoga classes, I still had that perfectionist teacher's pet mentality. 
So I would go to these <laughs> yoga classes. I would put my mat in front and center because I wanted to show the teacher how good I was at these yoga poses. And it was very humbling when the teachers actually, nobody's celebrating you at the end of the class or during the class for how fabulous you were doing. <laughs> so it was, um, it, I was like, and, you know, nobody, nobody, nobody's actually paying attention to you on the mat, which for me at the time, I was like, oh, how dare they? Why aren't they paying attention to me? Um, so it was so humbling and so great for me to be like, okay, I'm going to just bring my mat to the back corner now, and I'm just going to focus on me and to have that shift and to not try to be impressing or comparing was so great to be able to learn that on the mat and then mm-hmm. learning to apply that off of the mat as well and have that ripple effect off of the mat also. Right. The world doesn't revolve around me. Who knew? Who knew? I know. I know. You taught me that. Yeah. And also <sighs> I find um, it can be scary, but, you know, with, with our addictions, whatever, if it's people or substances, whatever it is, sometimes we're, we're running from something. We're trying to numb out. We're trying to distract ourselves. We're just trying to be anywhere but right here in the moment. So mm-hmm. then in our yoga mat, it's just us. It's our body. It's our mat. It's our breath. We don't have our smartphones. We don't have our relationships. We don't have our cigarettes. Fill in the blank. It, it's just us. And that can be really, really scary at first. But then with practice, we actually, as we start to feel again, feel our breath, feel our body, feel our emotions as they come and go on the mat. And we actually learn that we survived it. We, we lived. We're okay. The moment right now is actually okay and we're okay that is also really, really, really powerful, I think, mm-hmm. for those of us in recovery. Mm-hmm. It's, it, mm-hmm. it's, that would have terrified me when I was oh, yeah. drinking. And, um, oh, yeah. I would never tell anybody that's new to yoga recovery, oh, you're going to come feel your feelings. I keep that to myself until they start experiencing <laughs> themselves, and then I'll talk about it. Because, oh, yeah, it's terrifying. We don't want to do that. <laughs> or we think we do, and then we run from it. Hey, we're starting to run out of time, and I want to get to a couple of other yeah. things. So um, in addition to the She Recovers retreats in Mexico and Salt Spring Island, you have two mm-hmm. new venues opening up this year. Tell me about both of those. Yes. So May 5th to 7th, we are having She Recovers in New York City, which will be at the Conrad Hilton in the Financial District of New York. And this is different than a retreat or a workshop. This was um, an idea that was actually sparked from you, Jean, and Mom, um, from having a conversation about having more of an event that was kind of a conference or convention style with different speakers and different workshops. And that's what She Recovers in New York City is going to be. Um, This is the inaugural event. 500 women are coming. We sold out, which we knew we would, but we sold out a lot quicker than we anticipated. And we had a waiting list of hundreds of women on it. So we've actually um, opened up digital tickets so people can join us via live stream. And then they'll have access to some of the content for 60 days after. And this is new. We actually just released. We found a way to release 20 more tickets. So today, I don't know what the date is today. It's April sometime. What is it? Do you know, Jean? Friday, April 21st. 21st. Um, We have released tickets. So if you're listening to this and it's before the event, go check it out. And maybe there's a ticket available still or join us live stream. But really excited because women who books have changed my life and who I've seen and who I love so much. We have Marianne Williamson. 
Gabby Bernstein, Elizabeth Vargas, Glennon Doyle Melton. They're all going to be keynote speakers. We have Elena Brower joining us. I'm going to teach a yoga class with her, and she's going to share her ritual of recovery, um, spoken word poetry. We have workshops about codependency and trauma and sex and finances, and it's, it's going to be amazing. We are so excited. There's going to be a marketplace. So cool. So that's so cool. New York. And so that they can we, get tickets um, and the live stream, both of those they can access through your website, which is sherecovers.co, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah, and then there's a special page just for New York. You'll see the header, and then you can access Cvent, which will get you tickets to join us in person or the digital tickets as well. Awesome. And then this year, because Bali was – so profound and amazing for me, even though it was a very weird, chaotic time in my life. It was still a very pivotal time in my life. So I knew I wanted to go back to Bali and offer a retreat. So we are going to Bali in August and we're offering three different week-long retreats, similar to the ones that you would attend in Mexico. Um, But it's going to be in Bali and first time. And the venue is amazing. It's called Floating Leaf. It's about 45 minutes from the airport, so easy to get to, and it's, it's an eco-luxury resort, and the views, like, you're, we're surrounded by rice fields, and we have views of volcanoes, and the beach is really close by with, like, world-famous surfing, and it's going to be really, really special. Oh, it sounds divine. So and find then out yoga about that on the website, day, right? too. Morning yoga yeah, and afternoon yoga. Day. Yeah. yeah, and then we have meals, three organic meals prepared by our amazing chef. And we, of course, we do sugar-free. And then anybody with food allergies like me, you know, the gluten-free, dairy-free, et cetera, accommodating for all of those people, so nourishing. And for me, as somebody who's working on my disordered eating, I love having those three meals a day at set times. Mm-hmm. Um, it really helps me to reset my eating again. I love that part. And then in the evenings, we have sharing circles. And then we also, there's going to be a traditional Balinese ceremony and optional excursions. So you can either just relax and do as little as possible, or you can explore and just do all the sights and scenes. Now, I love going to these retreats because for me, I love that it's a prepackaged bubble of like, like my my I, you get a little schedule which you don't have to follow but I love like you yeah. said the meals are set the yoga is set so all I really have to do is just like look at my little page and someone's telling me where mm-hmm. to go oh time to go to yoga oh time to go for my massage but I really yeah. love the experience of you're in a bubble that has no alcohol no drugs no mm-hmm. like when you go on vacation at a nice all-inclusive resort there's still always the tray of drinks going by and you're always sort of on guard for that but I just love yeah. the safety of that of just being and being with other women who get it is like oh mm-hmm. it's fantastic the sharing circles are amazing yeah I yeah. I really I wish I could go to all your retreats but unfortunately I have to I stay wish home you and could money. too <laughs> we'll figure it out we'll figure out a way and yeah I mean that we we love that about our re- retreats too and I do want to add that not everyone that comes to our retreat is in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, but we do have that, of course, out of respect and for the safety of the women who are in recovery from that. But even if you're somebody who, do, who does drink, there is absolutely no shaming that would happen whatsoever at these retreats. 
There's not going to be any alcohol. There's not going to be any tolerance for drinking, but there will be no shaming from anybody else um, <laughs> if you are somebody that, that does drink you know, outside of the retreats um, in your day-to-day life. So everybody is welcome. And I just really want to make sure that the people know that, that everybody's welcome because we are all yeah. recovering from something and different things. And a lot of the women that come to our retreats do drink at home. You know? mm-hmm. So yeah, all is welcome. Yeah. Um, so in our just last few minutes here, I'm going to ask you a great big question and then give you like one minute to answer it. But okay. What, okay. what do you see as the future of recovery? What's your vision for it? And how do you see yourself in it? Yeah. Um, well, you know, mom and I kind of joke, but it's actually true. Mom is kind of the old traditional face of recovery. And I have this responsibility now, but I'm excited about it that I want to be like the, I want to show people my age and younger and everybody, um, kind of this cool modern approach to recovery. I think that um, for me, I was really afraid to let go. I thought I thought recovery would be boring, um, and I just I want people, girls my age and younger, and of course everybody any age. But I just really, really want women and girls to know that recovery is beautiful and it's amazing and it's rock and roll and it's fun. And I just people are dying. So many women around me are dying, and I just need that. We need it to stop. So I want to just do whatever I can and collaborate with whoever I can and as many people as I can so that we can try to figure out a way to figure this out so that women know that recovery is possible and that women know that they're worth recovery. Um, And I also really, really want, because it's such a big part of my story, and one of our intentions, we have 10 intentions and guiding principles, and one of them is that we believe in early intervention. We don't have to hit rock bottom to pursue recovery in any area of our lives, and I really want to focus on that in my advocacy work, that you don't have to hit a bottom to decide to change or to get help or to make these big transformations, because that can hopefully help save lives. Amen. So recovery is cool, and I want everyone to know that. Recovery is so yeah. cool. There's nothing cooler or more badass than feeling your feelings and being vulnerable and just being your true, authentic self. That's cool. And I just yeah. want people to know that. Yeah. yeah. Love it. I love that. And I love you. I miss you. I'm excited to see I you. I love you. Yeah. I'll and, see you in um, a few weeks. I know. I'm really, I'm really grateful that you shared today and I, I learned a lot about you that I didn't already know, including that you can go an hour without saying the F word. I did not know oh, that was possible. See, I wasn't <laughs> sure. I was sure maybe I didn't know. Okay, thank you. Now we all know. <laughs> now you my know mom you will be proud. <laughs> yeah. Although I get I my have to from her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's okay. We maybe. love you as you are. So just before thank we you. go, I just want to remind everybody that um, you'll find uh, this recording and others, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. But our website and our catalog are to be found on blogtalkradio.com slash bubble hour. And if you have any feedback for Taryn or you want to send her your story, you can send it to me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I'll make sure Taryn gets it. Meanwhile, check out uh, sherecovers.co for all kinds of, there's a blog, there is information about the retreats, you can get your e-tickets to the New York City event and watch those great speakers. There's a reading room with all kinds of recommendations. It's a very 
wonderful and wonderful website as well. Follow them on Facebook. So facebook.com slash she recovers. Uh, you can check out my blog at unpickledblog.com. And I think that is all the information for right now. Amazing. You have been listening to Taryn Strong of uh, She Recovers share her story. And Taryn, we are grateful to you. Gratitude is definitely a catchword around here. So um, thank you for being here with us today and for being real. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening, everyone. Take yeah. care. Okay. Take care. Stay on the line, Taryn. I'm going to I'm gonna play some music and we can chat off air before you go, okay? Okay. Uh, so, okay. So, listeners, uh, we uh, some of you, I hope I will see you in New York City. Uh, come and find me. I'll be at the blogger table. Taryn will be easy to find there. She's the pixie with the waist-length tomato red hair. And um, don't be shy about coming and saying hello and uh, introducing yourself. And um, you, you, you might even end up on this podcast your very own self. So until next time, everyone, uh, thanks for listening and take good care. I own it, I did that, not proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses, I just want to be.